I'm not sure if you noticed, but today this service started late because the 9.30 service started late because the 8.30 service ran over. (laughs) And let me tell you why. For decades, a wife has been praying for her husband's salvation. She passed away two weeks ago. And her husband, who's in his mid-80s, came forward this morning and accepted Christ. That's what God does. And so if our services go into overtime, that's why. It's a good reason. So I screamed as loud as I could. And I called out my son's name. And then with all of the strength that I could muster, I yelled the word no. His basketball was bouncing down the end of the driveway out into the street as I saw a pickup truck roaring down the side. My son stopped. You see, it's in that moment that a loving father says to his son, do not go that way. You are in danger. Stop and come back towards me. You see, that exchange is a picture of what Jesus is driving home in Matthew 18. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We finished up our sermon series through 1 Peter two weeks ago, and we'll be starting a new seven-week series through the book of Proverbs next week. And I'm really looking forward to digging into the Proverbs with you starting next week. But periodically, in between sermon series and in between books of the Bible, I like to take time for us as a church to look at different ways where we can get healthier. We can identify ways where we can become more faithful, more trusting in the Lord, and how we can continue to become a healthier church together. Now, one of the marks of a healthy church is faithful expository preaching, which means we look at the scriptures and we allow God to speak for himself through his word. You see, it's my desire for our church as your pastor is to be a Colossians 128 people. Paul says, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might mature, we might present everyone mature in Christ. That was my memory verse for this week, and I almost had it right. We're going to present everyone mature in Christ. On that day when we see Jesus, Paul says, I'm going to present everyone mature in Christ. And that's, that's my desire for us as a church, is to present everyone mature in Christ. But you see, the path to maturity is discipline. The writers of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said it like this in Hebrews 12. For they, speaking of our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But God does it for our benefit, so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, discipline, according to Hebrews 12, it produces holiness. It produces righteousness. 
Two characteristics of Jesus that he wants to see personified and manifested in his church. So in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us instruction on how the church is to confront a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin. In Matthew 18, Jesus is with his disciples in Capernaum. He could quite possibly be at Simon Peter's house, and he's teaching his disciples. They ask him, verse 1, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus calls upon, verse 2, a child. And with this child comes an object lesson sitting in Jesus' lap. Jesus says that believers are to humble themselves like, like little children, verses 3 through 4. Believers are to be protected like little children, verses 5 through 9. Believers are to be cared for like little children, verses 10 through 14. But then in verse 15 and following, Jesus declares that believers must be disciplined like little children. So before we unpack Matthew 18, let's, let's identify what we're talking about when it comes to church discipline. I put this in your notes. Church discipline is a loving call for a brother or sister in unrepentant sin to return to the path of following Jesus. When someone claims to be a follower of Christ and they continue to live in a life of sin, church discipline is God's design for calling people to return back to following Christ. So what does this look like practically? Okay, well, I want you to see in the text four steps the church takes in confronting a brother or sister who is in sin. I want you to see first, step one is one to one. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay, so step one, Jesus says to go and rebuke him in private. Step one is it is one to one. It's not a big group of people. You don't send out a mass text message to a bunch of people saying, what, did you hear about so-and-so? You don't put the information on Facebook and Instagram. You don't even bring it up to your small group as a prayer request. Hey, we need to pray for so-and-so because, I don't look now, you, you then step into sin as one who's slandering your brother. But you see, for some Christians, we skip step one because reality is it is much easier to talk about people than to talk to people. But you've got to fight that desire. It is far easier to sit back and watch a brother or sister go deeper and deeper into sin than it is to confront them. But you've got to fight that desire to stay back. But you must engage. We must have the courage and the humility to go and confront an erring brother or sister, verse 15, in private, one to one. You see, Christian love requires a humble and respectful confrontation of sin. You have to be willing to do this. Now, this is important. The first step is not to bring it to the church leaders. It's not to bring it to the deacons. It's not to take it to your, your small group or life group leader. The first step is personal. It's private. It is one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus says. Now, these conversations, y'all, these are awkward. They're painful. Oftentimes, it's very uncomfortable. But to, to love your brother is to step into the mess with the gospel. You step into the pain with the medicine of grace and truth. Y'all been following Jesus for 18 years. Verse 15 is never fun, but it's good. Now you as parents know this. 
It's never fun to discipline your child, but it's good. It produces righteousness within them. It trains them for a life that they are to lead. Now, there's two extreme dangers, y'all, we gotta be careful of. Two extreme dangers when it comes to church discipline. One is a laissez-faire approach. The other is a martial law approach. Now, laissez-faire is when a church neither preaches nor practices church discipline. There's no desire for holiness. There's no ongoing repentance. There's no accountability, no judgment. Sin runs rampant. People are like, hey, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a great picture of the American church. There are so many churches that look far more like the world than they do like Christ. That's a laissez-faire approach. But the opposite is a martial law approach to church discipline. This approach looks more like a witch hunt. People will self-appoint themselves as overzealous moral police. They walk around trying to catch people in sin. They try to take the speck out of someone else's eye before they take the plank out of their own. Like Pharisees, they bring the hammer down on everyone else's sin. But you see, when truth and grace are separated in the church, it leads to a relational gauntlet. And that's not God's design for his church. So what does this look like? You see, church discipline is never pointing a finger in someone's chest, but rather putting your arm around their shoulder. Several years ago, someone who I'm very close with and I I love very much was walking in an area of sexual immorality with their life. And I went to them with tears in my eyes and I said, please don't do this. Don't go this way. Turn, run back to Jesus, be restored, walk with Christ. You see, for us, we are continually pointing people to the gospel. We are continually walking people to the cross. Say, look what your sin has done. Look what my sin has done. And though your sin is great, his grace is greater. Look to Jesus. Let's turn from this way of life. Let's turn to Jesus and let's walk with him. You see, the gospel is not just a one-time act. It's a continual returning to the cross. And what's the goal? It's to win your brother. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, this is what we aim for. This is what we want. We want to see our our brother won back to Jesus. You see, restoration is always the goal of church discipline. Biblical church discipline is redemptive in nature. It's full of grace and truth, just like Jesus. It's motivated and fulfilled by the gospel. It is a loving call to a believer to return to the path of walking with Christ. And when you go and you confront them in love and say, please don't go this way, let's follow hard after Christ. And when you go through step one and you rebuke your brother in private and he listens and you have won your brother, what just happened? Well, listen to the words of Jesus' half-brother, James, in his letter. He says, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back... Let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you see the power that takes place when you and I are willing to humble ourselves and confront a brother or sister in sin? This is good. We, we, we save their soul from death. 
We cover a multitude of sins when we follow step one. When we're willing to enter into some very difficult and messy and emotionally painful conversations, but we're trying to, verse 15, win your brother. Trying to win him back to Christ. Don't go this way. Don't walk away from Christ. Watch your doctrine. Watch what you're teaching. Watch your lifestyle. Don't go that path. Come back the way of Christ. You see, church discipline is a rescue mission to bring a brother or sister back to walking with Jesus. Well, here in the text, Jesus says step one is to go one-on-one. But what if they don't repent? What if they're like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to keep going this way. Well, then you go to step two. Step two is two or three to one. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, but if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Okay, so after step one, you've confronted your brother. You said, hey, listen, you're walking away from the Lord. This is what your sin is. It's time to turn and come back to Christ. They don't listen, so Jesus tells you what to do next. Take one or two others with you. So that now the the confrontational conversation is now uh, two or three to one. And once again, you're trying to keep the circle small. You're not spreading gossip. You're not telling people what's happening. But you're trying to keep the circle small here. I think David Platt gives some really good counsel here in which he wrote, the point of this step is to broaden the circle slightly so that one or two others get involved in the situation, but not to begin ganging up on their brother or sister. Instead, these other believers can help you think through the situation better. Okay, so who do you include in this conversation? Well, they gotta be believers who are gentle and humble. They're godly, they're mature, and they're willing to go and have this conversation. Okay, so now that you're in the conversation, what does this look like practically? Listen to the words of Paul in Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers and sisters, If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, watch this, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one of those burdens in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Again, you don't enter into these conversations with guns blazing. You're not a prosecuting attorney who's trying to win a case. You are trying to win your brother. You're trying to win your sister. And Paul says in Galatians 6 that the way you approach that conversation is with a spirit of gentleness. You're respectful. You're kind. You're truthful. You're loving. You're entering into this conversation so that you might win your brother. Now, the timing between steps one and steps two, it's going to vary. Sometimes it's a matter of weeks and sometimes it's a matter of months. You want to allow time for that brother or sister to show, to prove that they have repented, that they have, in fact, turned back to following Jesus. This is what we're looking for. It's repentance, which means a change of mind. It's a change of will. They are changing the way that they think about their own sin. They're now turning away from it and turning to Jesus and allowing his grace to empower them to walk in victory. You see, proof is revealed in a changed life. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. 
So how do you know if someone is truly sorry for what they've done? Where is that godly sorrow? What does that look like? It looks like repentance. It looks like a grace-empowered life that has been changed from the heart and is displayed on the outside. Here's reality. Godly sorrow is not crying that you got caught. Okay, godly sorrow is a deep anguish that you have sinned against God. There was several years ago a young man that I had poured a lot into and there were several leaders um, in our church who had invested into this guy. And as he got older, he walked away from the faith and went into a very egregious, sinful lifestyle. Well, I started seeing him come back and I started building a relationship. Hey man, where you, where you been? How's life? And his tears, man, I, I, I've messed up. And I said, well, let's go get some breakfast. We went and had breakfast together and he's like, I'm ready, I'm ready to return. I'm ready to come back. Awesome, yes, Luke 15. We've won our brother, like a father running out to bring home his prodigal son. Get in here, all right. Praise the Lord. For the matter of months, he walked away again. And so me and a, another brother of mine, we, we went and met with him. Said, hey, what, what are we doing here? It's a step two here. We're, you're walking away. Come back, man. That's not the way of Christ. This is not God's design. Please turn. Come back to following Jesus. You see, what he displayed was temporary sorrow. It was a worldly sorrow. He was crying because he had gotten caught in some sin. Not because he realized that he had sinned against God and it led to repentance. And y'all, this is a gut-wrenching experience that we experience as believers. For me, this is the hardest part about being in the ministry. This is the hardest part about being a believer for all of us. It's when someone you love, someone you've invested so much into, walks away. You're like, how is that possible? How could you walk away from Christ? But, but this is what we do here, step one, it's one to one we go to. Hey, don't do this. Knock it off. Repent. Run to Christ. No? Step two. Two or three. Hey, guys, let's go together. Let's go meet with this brother and say, hey, man, you're heading the wrong way. Well, they still say no. Step three. Jesus says it's now the church to one. Look at verse 17. Jesus says if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. So if the sinning brother doesn't listen to the one-on-one, and he doesn't listen to the two or three-to-one, Jesus says, tell the church. Now, some might say, wow, Jesus, that's not very loving. Sounds awfully embarrassing for that person. Well, in fact, it's the exact opposite of love. Jesus here, he's not advocating a mob of people going to someone's house with torches and with billy clubs. No, this is a loving call where the entire church says, we love you. Don't do this. Here Jesus is mobilizing the church like an army, saying, go to this brother and invite him to repent. Come back to Christ. What are you doing? Let's follow hard after Jesus. You see, church discipline in many ways is like taking a wayward brother or sister by the hand and ushering them back to the cross. It's showing, hey, listen, this is the sin that you, you've been involved in. This is the false doctrine you have believed and have taught. These are the, the lies that you have said. This is the sin, but oh, the grace of Jesus is greater. 
Look to the cross. Look to what Christ has accomplished for you. Return. Turn back to Jesus and trust. And let's follow after him. Jesus says, after the one-to-one, or after the two or three-to-one, now let's get the church involved. But if they still don't repent, step four. It's removal from the church. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Jesus, in essence here, is saying, treat him like an unbeliever. He's not your brother in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you're, we're, we're jerks. It doesn't mean that we're mean-spirited. It's the exact opposite. We're loving and gracious and merciful. And yet, at the same time, this, this Gentile and tax collector reference that Jesus makes here, he's saying, treat them like they're an unbeliever. They don't, know, they don't know me. They're no longer a part of the church. This man, this woman, they're to be expelled. They're supposed to be ex- excommunicated. They're to be removed from the church. Now, this is not the only time that this shows up in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Let me show you what this looks like. Keep your finger in Matthew 18 and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthian church had lots of issues. They they did not affirm the resurrection, so G, uh, Paul writes all of 1 Corinthians 15 to correct their doctrine. You have a church split taking place where some are like, well, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, and I follow Christ. It's all these different divisions in the church. They're getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. They're taking each other to court. Their marriages are all messed up. This church was majorly dysfunctional. But then you get to chapter 5, and you see what's happening here is there is a man who is in a sexually inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. And Paul addresses this head on and says, this man is arrogant, but you as a church, you're being arrogant. But look at verse 5. Paul says this, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, that sounds harsh. Notice the redemption so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul's saying, if you cast this guy out, you may actually indeed be saving him. How is that possible? Because church, you're letting him know, we don't think you're a believer. And you know what's encouraging? You come back to 2 Corinthians later, the, the man actually repents. We don't know his name, but it's amazing how God restored this man. But here Paul is saying, guys, church, cast him out. Expel, excommunicate. Get this leaven out because he's going to ruin the whole lump. This little sin is going to ruin the entire church. And so he's addressing this head on. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Verse 12, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Watch this. 
don't you judge those who are inside? So you're saying we're supposed to judge one another? Paul says yes. You know, John 3.16 is no longer the most quoted verse in our culture. It's now Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. Who are you to judge me in my lifestyle? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm commanded to. So when you confront a brother or sister and they're like, it just feels like you're judging me. Your response is, I love you. I am judging you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, are you not to, to judge them? Don't judge those outside the church. They don't have the spirit. They don't know Jesus. But here Paul is saying, listen, you judge them. Now again, not with arrogance. We don't come at them with this belligerent or like a bully. We come like a tender, loving father. What are you doing? This is not the way of Jesus. You're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not seeing evidences of Christ. And so what do we do after steps one through three? We get to step four. Look at verse 13. Remove the evil person from among you, Paul says. Purge, expel, remove. Now, removal from the church does several things. I want to give you three. They're not in your notes. This is just for free. Number one, it protects the purity of the church. It protects the purity of the church. Step four protects the church from hypocrisy. It helps protect the church from sin and from evil. Now, here's the reality. If sinlessness was what was required for being a church member, this building would be empty. The, the prerequisite to the gospel is that you be a sinner. And guess what? All of us, we qualify. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus dies, he rises again, his Holy Spirit changes our hearts when we hear the good news and we believe and we're now part of a local church. And in this church, now together, we're pursuing Christ. We're daily denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following Jesus. We're pursuing hard after him together. Now, none of us is perfect. None of us has arrived. None of us have gotten to the point where it says, I'm awesome. Hasn't happened yet. But we are repenting. We are daily following Christ, saying no to sin and no to the flesh and no to the world and no to the enemy. And we're saying, yes, I'm following hard after Jesus. So when we decide we're going to follow hard after Christ, that's awesome. That's what a mark of the church should do. But if there is someone who is living a life or teaching a doctrine that is contrary to Scripture, then we are commanded by the word to protect the purity of the church. Christy and I, we do catechisms with our children. We teach them theology through a question and answer format. And one of the questions we ask the boys is, um, how is discipline a trait of the church? And they respond with, all God's people are protected. You see, Jesus is designing church discipline as a means of protecting his bride. But I want you to see, secondly, it alerts the entire church of the seriousness of sin. It's like smelling salts to the spiritually sleepy. When I was a kid, whenever my sister would make a foolish choice and would get disciplined, I straightened up. 
<laughs> it's true in my house as well. If I'm bringing the heat on one of the boys, the other four are like, oh, snap, dad's serious. <laughs> All of a sudden, morale improves. <laughs> I'm going to start making good choices now, right? Well, that's what happens in the local church. When we see a brother who's being disciplined, we're like, oh, man, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my life? What sins do I need to re repent of and run to Christ for? Where do, can I walk in greater obedience and greater joy? And what, is, what does faithfulness look like? So not only does it protect the purity of the church and alerts the church, to the, the entire church, to the seriousness of sin, but also number three, it warns the person that they don't know Jesus. It warns the church, we don't think you're a believer. When a church walks through humbly, faithfully, truthfully, through Matthew 18, you get to step four, the church is saying, we don't think you're a believer. We're not seeing evidences of grace. We're not seeing someone who belongs to Christ. Now, some would say, that doesn't sound very loving. Well, I think that's extremely loving. Because if someone leaves this life thinking they're a believer when they're not, it's unloving not to tell them. How many people leave this planet, are launched into eternity thinking that they're good, <laughs> but they stand before the Lord? The most loving thing you can t say to someone is, I don't think you're a believer. And you don't say it with arrogance or swagger or with pride. You say it with humility and with love. And say, listen, the evidences of your life are not proving that you know Jesus. So for followers of Christ, we are continually calling upon people, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You see, a primary difference between an unbeliever and a believer is an unbeliever doesn't hate their sin. They don't want to repent. They, might, they may like Jesus. They may agree with some of his teachings, but they don't repent from their sins. But you see, a Christ follower is continually repenting and trusting in Jesus for more grace. I've been following Jesus now for 18 years half of my life. And I pray if I'm still alive and the Lord gives me another 60 years, I am still daily repenting and trusting in Jesus for more grace, becoming more and more like Christ. This is the pursuit for us as believers. We're continually following after Christ. You see, as Christians, we continually return to Calvary. We continually go back to the place where my sin and where your sin was nailed to Jesus on the cross. We never get to a point in which we no longer need the grace and mercy of Jesus. But you see, Matthew 18 is also a warning to the church. If a church is unwilling to obey the command of Jesus in Matthew 18, then that church is in sin. They are in direct opposition to Jesus. A year and a half ago, I requested uh, several men and women from our church to put together for our church a document that would be able to serve us on the church discipline process. And I gave them the task with, I'd like a biblically rich, theologically accurate, and practically helpful document that will serve our entire church to know how to handle these situations. And so you can have access to this document now. It's on our website, gowestwood.org forward slash discipline. 
or you can go out to the info center where you can get a hard copy of it and you can walk through it. Inside your worship guide is like a Cliff's Notes of that document. It kind of walks us through the biblical, theological, and practical ways that we can follow Jesus' command here in Matthew 18. You see, this is driving us to this reality. We must continually be willing to go into people's lives whom we have a relationship with. Relationships are key. And you earn the right to be heard and you speak life and challenge into them and say, listen, don't go this way. Run to Jesus. Return back to him and his gospel. You see, the impact point is when your brother or sister sins, lovingly call them to return to the path of following Jesus. This is what we do as family. We go to someone who steps out of bounds and say, get back in here. Don't go that way. You see, after I screamed the word no, my son stood right where he was as the ball trickled across the street and the truck came flying by. And because he listened and because he heeded, his life was saved. And I walked up to him and I gave him a big hug. And I said, I love you. And I will always have your back. Don't do that again. And church family, that's what we do together. We walk up and we love one another. Come here. I love you. I've got your back. Don't do that again. Turn around. Walk this way. Let's walk the path of Jesus, and when you do, it is there that you will find life.